Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. When was the last time God called you to do something and you obeyed? Every day we read the Word of God, at least hopefully we do, but do we listen to what God is saying to us? And then do we obey? Each week we listen to inspiring sermons. Again, hopefully we do, but are we acting on what we're hearing? The fact is, the church has become complacent. We become lax, lazy about our Christianity, and our, more importantly, our walk with Jesus, our relationship with him. We've allowed a sense of entitlement to creep into our lives. So if I do a few good things for God, he'll be happy with me. That kind of an attitude, rather than an attitude of holiness that God calls us to have. If we were the light of the world, as Jesus calls us to be, we wouldn't be seeing the moral, spiritual, and civil decline in our families and our nation. Does God want us to simply survive? Or does he want us to thrive for him and in our land? If we want to see God work in our lives and in our country, we need to wake up and take action to become the followers of Christ that he has called us to be. I'm Debbie Blank. Today we will focus on waking up from the dead. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. There's a sudden gut-wrenching feeling the moment we rouse ourselves from a deep sleep to realize we've just slept through the alarm and now we've missed an important appointment. That jarring realization of missing a possible life-changing event or damaging relationship makes you do whatever's necessary to make sure that never happens again. We have an important appointment with Jesus, who is coming for us very soon. But because we don't know the specific day or hour, we need to wake up now and stay alert to the signs of the times. In the book of Revelation, Jesus has a warning for the church of Sardis that the church today must take to heart. So, wake up. No hitting the snooze alarm. We need to be found alert, awake, focused, and looking forward to a life-changing appointment with our Lord Jesus Christ. The Church of Sardis has such an interesting history that we want to walk through that before we open Revelation 3 and talk about this Church of Sardis. The history of the city is that Sardis was the capital of the area of Lydia, which is currently in western Turkey. They had a river running right next to them, which gave them a fertile valley for planting crops and raising sheep and other things. But most importantly in that river, they found gold. It's said that that gold came down from the mountain around it called Mount Timolus. It ran into the river. That's where they found it. I could just see them panning for gold in that river. So the city became very wealthy, so wealthy that the king at that time, whose name was Croesus, became a symbol of being as rich as Croesus. Some people say he was really the foundation of Midas and the Midas touch. They were able to mint coins for the first time ever in history with the gold that they found. They also were so culturally advanced that they learned to dye sheep's wool so that it wasn't just white anymore. It could become different colors, which the people loved. So it was a wealthy city. It was prominent in its location. It was one of the top cities in the world 
at that time. That's how strong Sardis was. Now, this is back in the 7th century BC, before the time that the information is written to the church of Sardis. So we have to understand that their history was one of a very wealthy city. Well, it turns out that Croesus went to the Oracle of Delphi in Greece because he wanted to know if he should go up to battle against King Cyrus. You may remember in the Bible, King Cyrus is the one who allowed the Jews to return to their homeland after they'd been exiled. He was a Persian king who really was in control of the whole world. Now, he was coming upon the area of Sardis and Lydia. So Croesus wanted to know if he should go up against him. So the Oracle of Delphi said, you will destroy a great nation if you cross the Halus River into the Persians. Well, he understood that to mean that he'd be a great nation that would destroy the great nation of Persia. But it was just the opposite. If he went up against the Persians, they were going to destroy the great nation of Sardis. And they did, or at least they tried to. But King Croesus and the Sardinians ran home. They ran to their walled fortress on top of Mount Tamalus. Understand that Mount Tamalus was 950 feet above the flatland, above the area where they had many of their temples and other part of the city. Sardis, by the way, is plural. So there were actually two cities in Sardis, but the main one was the top of this mountain. It was so steep and they had three walls around the top of it that nobody could penetrate this city. So what King Cyrus did was he said, I will give a great bounty to the person who figures out how we can get up and conquer this city. It just so happened that one night, a soldier, only one soldier was guarding the walls because they were so high up, nobody could ever penetrate it. So he was up there and he fell asleep. When he did, his helmet fell off of his head and tumbled down all the way to 950 feet crevices had broken through in the rock of that mountain. And he knew how to get down and get his helmet and get back up without anybody seeing him, or so he thought. But it turns out that a man named Hierodes saw him. He realized that there was a way to sneak up to the city. So he took his garrison with him. They crawled up that crevice they defeated the city and the Persians took over Sardis. Okay, so what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. When they took over the city, instead of killing all the men in the city, they took away their armor, they took away their weapons. Instead, they gave them tunics to wear and slippers for their feet. They gave them musical instruments. They taught them how to play them and they caused this city of warriors to become a city of musicians. The Sardinians didn't know how to war anymore. They had been re-educated. They had been re-indoctrinated and they lost their ability to defend themselves because they were no longer warriors. This sounds a lot like the United States in many ways. We're the most important country in the world. We're large. We have military power. We're rich. We have a vast history of prominence. We're industrial developers. We've got everything just like Sardis did. But once we start being subjugated and re-educated and re-indoctrinated, we could easily slip into the same kind of scenario that Sardis did in that we become weak. We turn away from defending our country. We become complacent and tired and our helmet can fall off and we could be conquered. We can get lulled into a different state of alertness, a different state of awareness of who we are and our situation and what our history 
is and has been. And when that happens, history can repeat itself. So what we were learning from Sardis, there's more to learn about it, where history repeats itself, to the point where this is something that Jesus Christ uses in the book of Revelation as an example to the church of Sardis. You would think that the Sardinians would have remembered what happened under King Cyrus back in the 7th century BC and made sure it never happened again. But they didn't. The same thing happened when Antiochus Epiphanes came up to war against Sardis. They completely forgot what had happened before. They had their mountaintop again. They were impenetrable. And yet somebody who was up on that hill fell asleep. And when he did, the city was conquered again, virtually the exact same way. So you not only had the city of Sardis conquered once, but it was conquered twice because it didn't learn from its history. If we don't learn from our history, we are doomed to repeat it. And we could fall into that. We could lose the glory that we've seen. It could become past glory if we don't wake up. You see, those two men fell asleep. That's why Jesus is going to tell them at the church to wake up because they understood what it meant to fall asleep and how it destroyed their city twice in over 700 years because they fell asleep. Are we falling asleep as Christians? Have we become complacent so that we're just allowing our government to run things the way they do and people to do things however they want to do? and allowing it to the point that we accept anything that's going on around us. A lot of what we're seeing right now, I guess, could be considered a definite wake-up call. We're seeing what can happen when we do let go of our guard. We let our guard down, we get lulled into the busyness of our lives, and we don't value the lessons we know from history. We don't value the lessons that we learn from Scripture. Well, with that history given, let's move into the book of Revelation and see what God says to the church of Sardis. Realize when John writes this, that we're about 200 years later from their latest conquest by Antiochus Epiphanes. At this point, there's a prominent Christian community in the city of Sardis. Two churches have actually been uncovered, one a huge one on the road to the Temple of Artemis, and then another one in the city. But at this point, it's become a center of emperor worship, imperial cult worship, you might say. That's the state religion where the rulers were worshipped. So there was a large Roman gym and bathhouse. There was that temple to Artemis. It was one of the seven largest temples in the world. There was about 100,000 people population at that time. It was a Roman city now. It had actually been destroyed as a city twice by earthquakes. So Emperor Titus decided to rebuild it and make it in a new important city again because of the region where it was in. It was right in the middle of all the commerce and trade. With that in mind, it's like our church today. And that is that it was founded strongly on Judeo-Christian principles. That's why they had such a large Christian community there. But there was also that separation of church and state. Probably about 85%, you would say, called themselves Christians And they were active in their service and probably active in sharing the truth of the word of God. So really, they're a lot like us today. Wealthy community, government that's supporting them, Christians doing the right thing, a great church, but yet God has something to say to them. It's interesting because when you said there could be a parallel with us, isn't that about the same statistic of people who call themselves Christians in the United States? 
when we're not so sure that they understand what that means anymore. So God does an evaluation, but because of our parallels and things are put in the Bible for our education, for an example to us, we need to pay attention to what Jesus says to the church at Sardis. Yes, because we have so much in common. Well, as in every church in the book of Revelation, Jesus starts with a commemoration. And that is, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now, the seven spirits of God relates to Isaiah 11.2, and that's also mentioned in Revelation 1.4. And the seven stars, according to Revelation 1.20, are the angels of the seven churches. He's simply saying that Jesus is the seven spirits of God, and he controls the seven stars of the seven churches. Now he's going to go into the commendation. He's going to recognize Sardis for the good things that they've done. That's the theme that we always see in the churches to in Revelation. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. So when he says, I know your deeds, he's saying, I know the works that you're doing. You are doing amazing works, just like many of the churches in our country. We're helping the poor. We're serving the homeless. We're taking care of the needs of refugees. We're doing good works. But the question is, why are we doing good works? Are we doing good works because Jesus wants us to? They're an outgrowth of our faith. Or are we doing good works because that's what we think is going to draw us to God, bring us to heaven? Apparently, they were doing good works for the wrong reasons. And he says that you have a name, that you are alive. So again, they're helping the poor. They're doing mighty things. They're recognized for helping other people. That's what Jesus did. That's what we're supposed to do. I mean, look at us. We've got a church on every corner, practically, especially in the South. We've got a great Christian heritage. We've got missionaries. We've got the past glory. We have that name. We look like we're alive. But what we look like on the outside may have nothing to do with what's in our hearts. So they're doing good things in the name of Jesus, but are they following Jesus? Sometimes I wonder when churches have this wonderful reputation of doing good works, if they aren't at some point in time worshiping their own good works. It's like, aren't we great? Isn't this wonderful? And they say they're doing it for the Lord. But as you said, the Lord can look into your heart and know what your true motives are. Sometimes I wonder if people go that social justice route where they're worshiping their works and the good things that they're accomplishing instead of worshiping God, instead of doing it from a heart of love and Christian charity versus what makes you look good, what makes you approved of by the rest of society. And a lot of people do good works because they're trying to work their way to heaven. And yet Romans 4 tells us very clearly that works will not get you into heaven. It's faith alone. Works are an outgrowth of our faith of Jesus Christ, or they're supposed to be. So as we're reading these words to the church of Sardis, we have to see ourselves in these. The next point that Jesus makes is a condemnation. He says to the church of Sardis, but he makes a contrast. He says, but you are dead. So you're doing good works, but your heart is dead. You are spiritually dead. You have the profession, but without the possession of Jesus Christ. You have a form of godliness, but you're denying his power, like 2 Timothy 3, 5 says. You look like a church, but there's no life in you, not any life for Jesus Christ anyway. You have maybe legalism and tradition rather than Jesus as the foundation. 
Maybe this church has no shame in their sin, much like our church today. We go to church and feel good and love the music and worship Jesus and walk right out the door and sin against God because we have no shame in sin. We make our own rules rather than following God's. That's our religion rather than our relationship when we do that. We are allowing and celebrating evil, whether it be abortion or gay marriage or civil unrest. Those things are not of God, but we're celebrating them. That's why Jesus said to this church, you're dead, because he saw their hearts were wrong. Our hearts in the church are wrong. If they weren't, our country would be different than it is today. When you look back into the days of the founding fathers and the early revivals, those people changed our country into a God-honoring country in our actions and in our hearts. We may call ourselves Christians. We may look good on the outside. On the inside, we're as rotten bones. I was just thinking about that, that example of whitewashed tombs. It looks good on the outside, but on the inside, not only is there death, but the whole idea of decay. And that's very sobering. We don't want to be in that position where Jesus sees us and sees decay. That's from Matthew 23, 27, as a matter of fact, when Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The religious leaders understand that. He's saying, woe to you, you're hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Then he says again, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13, for no man can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, each man's work will become evident for the day will show up because it is revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. So this church and us may be doing good works for Jesus Christ, but that fire is going to burn up the wood, hay, and stubble. It's not going to burn up the gold, silver, and precious stones. The gold, silver, and precious stones are the works we do for Jesus Christ because he's called us to, and he gets the glory for it. The wood, hay, and stubble are the good works we do to look good on the outside, but they're not for the intent of drawing people to Jesus Christ. We need to ask ourselves who we're being obedient to when we look at Romans 6, verse 16. It says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Who are we actually obeying? Good question. Well, now we've gone from the commemoration of who Jesus is to the commendation for this church to the condemnation of this church. Now Jesus is going to give them counsel. And his counsel is wake up. It means rouse from your sleep. Be watchful. They should have learned from their past two times of destruction about falling asleep and they didn't. So the church there has become complacent and fallen asleep. They've been lulled into that complacency taking our situations for granted by them and us in life. Well, we live in a Christian community. We are a Christian denomination. We're good people. We're going to heaven. No, that's why Jesus says, wake up. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 26, 41, when he says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus tells us that we want to do something but we're just too weak in the flesh to do it. 
And then he tells us in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. We need to do that. We need to wake up and decide that we are going to follow Jesus instead of following the ways of the world. We're going to see what happens to the people at Sardis because they didn't wake up. We don't want to be in their position. There are definitely dangers in not waking up. I think of 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If that isn't danger, I don't know what is. But then you spoke of the positives of being alert, where you can stand strong, you can stand firm. And so it's very important to look at both sides of that, how important it is to be alert. And then after he says, wake up, he says, and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. Strengthen means to confirm, to establish, to start somewhere. So secure the elements that are good, biblical, of value, eternal. Get back to marriage, the traditional values, the values of life, using the name of Jesus. Those things take us away from God. We've got to strengthen the things that we've got. Then he goes on to say, for I have not found your deeds complete full or perfect in the sight of my God. And now he's going to tell him again in his counsel, remember, in other words, never be allowed to forget what you have received and heard. In the church of Sardis, they need to remember what they'd been taught and what they'd gone through in their history and never forget what they've received. You and I need to remember the day of our salvation, the day that Jesus came into our hearts and how it changed us so that we never forget that we need to know as a country what God used to found this country and where our hearts were and never forget. Remember the joy of our salvation. As David said in Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then he goes on and finally says, and keep the gospel, obey it, hold fast to it. That's present tense. It means continuously ongoing, keep the gospel message, know the word of God, follow it, obey it. And then he finally ends his counsel by saying, and repent. Repent is something we must always do before we can see God work in our lives. Repent means to turn and go the other way. It means that we need to subject ourselves to God, him and him alone, put him on the throne of our lives. As a matter of fact, of the seven churches of Revelation, five were told that they needed to repent. The two that didn't in Smyrna and Philadelphia was because they were doing the right thing for the Lord. The Lord had no condemnation against them. But for those of us who are being condemned, we need to repent. And then he warns them, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. We don't know when Jesus is coming, but we sure know that the signs of the times are there for him to return very soon. If we don't wake up, Jesus could come and the rapture could take place and we're not going to be going with him because we really haven't repented. We haven't awakened and turned back to God and strengthened the things that he has given us. And then Jesus finally says, there are a few people in Sardis who've not soiled or defiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they're worthy. So there were a few remnant left. What a blessing that is. There's some of us as remnant who are left, who love Jesus and follow him. Well, he goes on to give them compensation for what they will receive if they turn back to Jesus. We've seen the condemnation. We've seen what he's called them to do, which is wake up. 
And then at the end, there's hope. Amidst everything that might seem negative, he gives hope. He always does. I love reading the Old Testament prophets because they're all about gloom and doom and what's going to happen because Israel is turned away from God. But in the midst of all of those prophecies about what will happen to them because of their sin, God always gives them hope. He gives them a vision of what the future is going to be like. He gives them encouragement to stay strong through these times. And he does the same thing to every one of these churches. He gives them compensation, we call it, to match all those C's that we've been talking about it. He promises them something to give them that hope. In this church, he says, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Now that's significant because first of all, they have to overcome. That's Nike, which means they have to be victorious or they have to prevail. If we will do all the things that Jesus has told them to do, if then there is hope they will prevail. They will overcome their sin. And he promises to clothe them in white garments. That's specific for the church of Sardis, because remember, they were known for taking white wool and dyeing it. But white was always the sign of purity. And that signifies that they've overcome the battle. According to Revelation 19, it says specifically, it was given to her, that's the church in heaven, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So when Jesus gives the church of Sardis white garments, they're not only not dyed, but they're a symbol of their good works that they have done for Jesus that he will reward in heaven. He goes on to say, I will not erase his name from the book of life. That's a figure of speech because God will never erase our book from the Lamb's book of life. That means once we're saved, we can never be taken out of his book of life. We are guaranteed with eternity. But what that means is he will not erase them from the security of being alive at that time. Because the Bible talks about two books, the book of life and the book of the living. So when he's talking here about the book of life, he's talking about the book of the living. In other words, they're not going to die prematurely. And then he says, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Wow, that right there is enough for us to want to overcome. If you remember, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Therefore, Jesus is saying to us, if we will wake up and remember and repent, our hearts will be turned towards him and he's going to be there with us and for us, confessing our name before the Father. I want Jesus to be using my name in a positive way and I want him to be using my name before God the Father. That in a nutshell should be a reason for us to listen to what Jesus has to say. Don't see it as a condemnation. You're no good. You can't do anything right. Why do you pretend you're a Christian when you keep falling? We're sinners. We're going to turn away. But look at this as a Jesus loves us enough to point out areas that we need to change. Then he gives us the ways to change so that we can then be with him. I want to be in that church that overcomes sin to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. How about you? Have you deserted the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you turned to tradition, your church or your social guidelines, which have led you to become complacent? Paul asks the Galatians that in Galatians 1, 6 through 10. 
He says, I'm amazed that you've so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another one. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't allow that to happen. And then we need to wake up and remember what we have from Jesus Christ and then keep the gospel and repent. If we will do that as individuals, if we will do that as a nation, our nation will be a vibrant light for Jesus Christ as we once were. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for our nation. I hope you do too. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.